Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. Grabs one out to deep left field. This one's got a chance to get out of here. Gone. Three run Jimmy Jack first. Big league home run for Mike Trout. Five in the second half. Ladies and gentlemen, you have witnessed the second greatest scoring performance in NBA history. Bam! Brand new theme music for the show. I'm pumped. I'm hoping Kenny comes in right now. Kenny, I'm going to go work out. Let's, let's just end the show right here. Awesome, awesome music. What do you guys think of that? Absolutely pumped. I asked you to give it to me on a loop so that I could hear it over and over again in the car ride to work, back home. I absolutely love what you did, Wayne. I mean, the fans of our shows are probably going to get confused with us changing clothes each and every episode, but they're going to have to get used to this one because this one's sticking. This is a beaut, huh, Sully? Let's go, boys. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. you got to love the new music. Go with the new name change. We're getting hype around here. Let's get it! Speaking of which, this is Infinity Sports. This is episode four of Infinity Sports, episode 16 overall, I believe. It's going to be a really cool show. We're going to be talking Lance Armstrong, Major League Baseball, right into our Infinity Five. We're going to kick this off with something that Dan said that I don't know how he dares suggest that Clay Thompson is better than Allen Iverson all time. I, I can't even wrap my mind around that. I don't know what's so hard to understand. I don't really see what Allen Iverson does better than Clay Thompson, other than driving to the basket. I mean, other than that, I'm a big, big Clay Thompson fan. And personally, I think Allen Iverson is one of the most overrated players of all time. And what's crazy is I love the guy. I love, love, love the guy. But I still think he's one of the most overrated players of all time. You saw that team he brought to the finals, right, Sully? Yeah, yeah. And he got crushed in the finals. They got crushed. They lost 4-2 to the one of the greatest teams in history with Kobe and Shaq both in their prime still. Okay, so yeah, they got crushed, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I love numbers. Don't don't we all love numbers? That's my favorite. It's like cookies and ice cream and numbers. And let me tell you some numbers. Average points per game for his career, 26.7 to 19.5. Five-time scoring champion, 30 points per game. Clay's never averaged 30 in his life, and he's never even come close to sniffing the top five in scoring in the NBA. What's up there? That's not his job. I think they had two different jobs, and I think to put it in a vacuum, I mean, that's what you do great. You know what I'm saying? You're a great debater, and you're going to make great arguments, but again, I think that's just a vacuum, just purely solely looking at his points per game and things like that. I mean, Clay has a higher shooting percentage. He has a higher three-point percentage, and I think he's just a much better overall scorer. I mean, his shooting percentage from three-point is 100 points better. I mean, that's bonkers, especially in today's game. Plus, he's a pure defensive stopper. He shuts down your best wing scorer and I think that's kind of what separates Clay Thompson from Allen Iverson is his overall game let's talk about defense and let's talk about I know Jesse wants to talk about you know three time or five time whatever he was steals champion and that's fine we'll get to that let's just talk about defensive win shares and that's it Allen Iverson 38.1 Clay Thompson 18.8 now to give you an idea Allen Iverson averages about the same as Kobe Bryant whereas Clay Thompson, his defensive win shares are actually less than Mookie Blaylock, Keith Van Horn, and his best season ever is on par with James Harden, you know, the greatest defender in the NBA. Those defensive win shares, you know, AI is going to have a ton of them because he's played 10 more seasons, so he's going to naturally have a higher win share. What about uh, per season? Uh, per season, he's over four, and Clay's never been over three and a half. Uh, okay, I guess you got me there a little bit. Again, I, I think... What Clay Thompson does is he does it better. I think he's more of a defensive stopper. I know the win shares may tell a different story, and I think that boils down to the steals numbers. And I think steals is an overrated stat, if, if I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really think it tells a whole story about a pure defender. Because, I mean, Clay's going to lock down a guy where his AI's really never been known as a lockdown defender. You can throw all the numbers you want. If I'm watching two guys play, Clay Thompson's a better player than Allen Ivers. Ah, uh, the eye test. 
He certainly has some scoring outbursts where we saw him actually go for an NBA record 37 points in one NBA quarter. We're talking about Klay Thompson here. So he is a guy that is a flamethrower from deep. He also set an NBA record with 14 threes in one game. So he is a scoring machine. I think both are playing in somewhat different leagues. But I personally feel like Allen Iverson is the better all-time player. Sully, you did bring up a good point that AI had more time in the league, that his career did extend longer than what we've seen Clay do so far. I just struggle to say that Clay's a better player because we haven't seen him do it without the cast that he currently has around him. You know, having Steph Curry on that team, and personally, Steph Curry is one of the best shooters, top two shooters of all time. So, I mean, to say that Clay Thompson has had the opportunity to lead a team like AI did, I struggle to, to agree with that aspect when I brought up the NBA Finals. I think that's kind of a hindrance to him is that he's been on a team. If he's had a team that's been on by himself where he's the number one option, I think he dwarfs Allen Iverson's scoring numbers. I mean, you've just said it. He's never been the number one option, and he's averaged 21, 22, 22, 20, 21 in these last five seasons. So I think that's actually kind of been a hindrance to his overall greatness. Now, obviously, it's allowed him to get three NBA championships and things like that. To the defensive point, AI never made an all-defensive team. Granted, Clay Thompson's only made one, but that still counts for something. And he also plays in a league where he's got Kawhi Leonard in a position that he has. He's got Paul George in the same position. So he's got these defensive stoppers that he's got to get by. No, I know Allen Iverson did too, and that's probably why he never made an all-defensive team because... Let's be real, he had Gary Payton ahead of him a lot of the times. But, I mean, I just think the separation is there enough defensively. And scoring-wise, I understand he doesn't have the same numbers, but I think if he had the opportunity, he would. I mean, obviously, like Jesse mentioned, the guy can put numbers up in bunches. And, I mean, he's got NBA records galore. So, I just think, just me personally, I just have him ahead of AI. Okay, and how about the uh, the Philadelphia 76ers teams that Allen Iverson was part of? Would you say that his supporting cast was better than Klay Thompson's supporting cast? Oh, God, no. Of course not. Well, then how come he averages three times the assist that Klay Thompson does? 6.2 to 3. Or no, 2.3. he's 2. a point 3. guard and one's a, sh- a shooting guard. He's a point guard who puts up 28 shots a game? Yeah. He's a shooting guard. He's six feet he, tall. He, don't, I don't... understand. What he, I mean, you watched the game. He was the, he was the primary ball handler for that team. Let's not act like he wasn't. Yes, he's listed as a shooting guard, but let's not act like he wasn't the primary ball handler of that team. We all watched those 76ers teams. I mean, that guy was touching the ball every single solitary possession. That's why he has twice the assist, three times the assist. Uh, until Scott, until Scottie Pippen came along, Michael Jordan was the primary ball handler for the Bulls. He was never a point guard in his entire life. No, but it, it, just because he's the primary ball hander, that's, I mean, if you, like, LeBron James was never a, a point guard in his entire life. You still consider the guy a point forward and consider him the primary ball hander, and that's why he has so many assists. I mean, let's be real. If you're going to bring up an assist stat, you have to put it in context. Clay Thompson doesn't ever dribble the ball. The guy doesn't dribble the ball. He catches the ball and shoots the ball, or he cuts to the basket. I mean, that's just, they're two completely different styles. So that's why as one has more assists. Why doesn't Allen Iverson have, a, why is his three-point percentage only three 300%? Why is he only shooting 30% from three? He's not a good three-point shooter. In today's game, I mean, you can't have that shit. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just think one's better than the other. <laughs> Michael Red's a better three-point shooter than Allen Iverson, so I guess he's a better all-time player. Uh, No, I mean, he doesn't play defense as well, so I mean, I think there's the difference. That lefty stroke, though, by Red. Yeah, here's another great stat for Clay Thompson. He's six foot eight. Allen Iverson's five eleven, maybe. How come Allen Iverson averages more rebounds per game? Well, by point one. Yeah, whatever it is, six know. eight to six eight to six they, feet. Like they average the same amount of three point five to three point six. Like that's what we're arguing right now. Wait, let's say they're tied. Let's say, let's say that they're tied. Okay, I average as many rebounds per game as Kawhi Leonard in a men's league. Because I don't think, I don't think height has anything to do with rebounding. I mean, Dennis yeah, Rodman's arguably the greatest rebounder of all time, and he was six eight. You know, Charles Barkley repeatedly pulled down twenty rebounds a game, and he was six six. I think it's more about position and things like that. Again. Clay Thompson spends 80% of his time outside of the paint. Allen Iverson lived in the paint. I mean, it's just, it was his game. He just lived in the paint. You're putting up these, these stats, and yes, they sound great and they look good on paper, but they're two different styles of play, and it's really tough to just put a number and say why his is better than the other. Well, I mean, they don't at all play the same style of basketball, so numbers are going to look different. Again, if you watch the two play basketball, I would personally rather have Clay Thompson than Allen Iverson. I think Allen Iverson's more of a team cancer than he is a team benefit. And I understand what he did with his team in Philadelphia and how he brought that terrible team essentially by himself to a championship or to a to an Eastern Conference championship. But you can't build around a guy who takes 
28 shots a game that can't hit a lick from three and is 5'11". I mean, I just don't, I don't see it. So to sum up the debate then, this is just to sum it up. In every single statistical category that exists in the game of basketball, with the exception of three-point percentage, Allen Iverson is superior to Clay Thompson, but he just doesn't pass the eye test. He, that, that's where Clay's better. Well, it's field goal percentage as well, Wayne. I mean, he trumps him in field goal percentage. I mean, it's not just three-point shooting, it's shooting as a whole. You know, shooting wasn't really AI's best asset. It was certainly getting to the hole, like Sully had mentioned earlier on. And, you know, the one thing I wanted to certainly bring up, I'm going to die on this hill, is that it's not just that final supporting cast. Throughout that entire career the AI was in Philly, he did not have a great teammate with him. No, I agree, but I I think that's what inflates his numbers to the point that he's averaging 26 points a game and things like that. I mean, if you put Allen Iverson on the Golden State Warriors right now, does he average 26 points a game? I mean, I don't think so. I think he gets traded due to his attitude, to be honest. I, I do as well. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Jesse. I mean, his effective field goal percentage is 100 points less than Clay. Those stats matter to me. And yes, on paper, Allen Iverson is a better stat stuffer. I'll give you that win. Here's a statistic I really like in basketball, which is player efficiency rating, because this is kind of like... I love the... I do like PER. PER is like basketball's war, but it's not cumulative. It's an average. And Allen Iverson's average PER is 20.9. It's ahead of Steve Nash. It's ahead of Carmelo Anthony, Paul Pierce. It's ahead of Jimmy Butler. And Clay Thompson's PER is 16.4, which is below Ruben Patterson. I, I mean, I feel you. PER has a lot to do with usage, too. So, I mean... So going with that usage argument there, Sully, do we think that there is an opportunity where Clay could play for a different team and potentially inflate some of those stats that Wayne is trying to use against you in this argument? Oh, yeah, I already said that. I think if Clay Thompson played on a team where he was the number one option in the main score, he'd easily average close to 27, 28 points a game. Do we really question that? I mean, he already averages 22 a game now. If he's on a team where he's the number one guy, I think that's easily 27-28. I don't even think that's an issue. And then, too, if he's the number one option, he's probably facilitating more and things like that. So I think it brings the argument a lot closer. I don't know. Again, I think the eye test, I'd take Clay Thompson. And I think that this is an area where we agree to a point, which is I've been t- saying for the last two or three years even, that Clay Thompson is a 30-point-per-game scorer. He's just not on the team to average 30 points per game. And I do think that he is an MVP candidate if he's the star of a team. So I do agree with you there. I'm just saying that where they stand right now in their careers, Clay Thompson retires today, he's not even going to be mentioned in the same breath as Allen Iverson. Okay, I, I may be able to concede that argument to you. You know, I'm doing a little projection. I mean, obviously, Clay Thompson's only been in the league, what, eight years? So I'm projecting that he plays probably another six or seven and kind of continues and then maybe even plays a little more where he just has the Ray Allen role and he just fucking shoots 40% from three forever and things like that. And then my argument has a better crutch to stand on. So maybe I'm doing a little projection, but I have no issue with that because I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm just a big Clay Thompson fan. You guys want to talk some bikes? That is a great segue, Jesse, into our next segment, which is ESPN does such fantastic documentaries. The 30 for 30 series has been phenomenal. The Two Bills, You Don't Know Bo, Brian and the Boz, they're all great. And the most recent one was Lance. And it was a two-part documentary. It's all about Lance Armstrong. And I thought it was personally captivating given everything that he's been through and I say him, I mean, he's done a lot of things to other people too, but just, it was such an interesting story and to get his point of view and his unapologeticness about being an asshole. Like, he's just like, hey, I'm an asshole, whatever. Oh, absolutely. He was the most cocky guy that you could see that had seven titles stripped from him. This guy had the opportunity to come out and, and be more honest and say that he would do things different, but he, in several opportunities, then said, no, I would absolutely not do anything different than what I did. So I took a lot from that. I, I took a lot from the fun documentary. I learned a lot from it, to be honest. I'm not really a huge cycling fan. I've never watched the Tour de France. So I, I did enjoy, like the, the documentary previous to this in The Last Dance, the amount of honest interviews that we saw from people that hated him, from people that lost money due to him, lost fame due to him, different commissioners, former teammates. So this was a very deep documentary, even though it was only two parts. Boy, I 100% agree. I mean, I, I went into this not really expecting much because I'm not a huge cycling guy. I didn't really follow this whole thing while it was going down either, to be honest with you. You know, I just didn't really give a shit. 
But man, going back and watching this, I'll tell you what, it was incredibly captivating. There were some points that, I mean, he's got a ton of likenesses to Michael Jordan. He mentioned that he would create things to motivate himself, to get pumped up and things like that, which Michael we know did. And he had this asshole kind of bully persona that, you know, I think just these greats have where people take them as just pure assholes. And it's really just, hey, look, I know I'm better. I just plain and simple know I'm better. And yeah, that comes off as kind of asshole and pompous, but I don't really think they even know they're doing it. They just truly feel they're better. And I just saw the likenesses there in the the two greats. And I just thought it was absolutely amazing. You know, his father, or his adopted father, the gentleman who he got his last name from, when they mentioned him and and he got his interview, I thought that was really interesting. And and he mentioned kind of the disciplinary actions he took towards Lance and, and instilled this discipline into Lance. And he straight up says, Lance wouldn't be great without me and things like that. And I mean, that was a side that I I never really knew and I think kind of had a toll on Lance a little bit. And I mean, that kind of physical abuse as a child can really resonate. And, you know, I think kind of he just never wanted to disappoint anybody. But man, I I thought it was a great series. I'm not going to lie. Over that decade of Lance Armstrong's dominance, we all remember the yellow armbands, the Livestrong bracelets. I'm sure we've seen them. Maybe we even wore them at a time. But I think something that I certainly didn't learn prior to this that Wayne actually told me, and then I got to hear it from Lance himself, was that doping was so much more common in cycling than I ever thought. He wasn't the guy that lost the titles and then they could hand it to second place or third place. Wayne, can you touch more on on how big doping was in cycling? Well, he mentions it as well. I mean, there was they mentioned it in the whole series of that huge doping scandal right before he won his first one, or right before he went into chemotherapy, that it was just absolute riddled with doping. And then they just the doping got better. That's why they didn't have it while he was doing it, is they just got better at masking it and better at hiding it. And what ended up happening was when Lance was doing it, all of his teammates were doing it, all the other teams were doing it. And I think I remember mentioning that, you know, they took his medals away from him or his wins away from him, but they couldn't give them to the second place guy or the third place or the fourth place. And they ended up having to give him to like the seventh or eighth or ninth place guy each of those years that he won because so many guys were doping. Yeah, which I think is horseshit. I mean, at that point, for one, I have a different take on doping. And I think you're very similar to my take, Wayne. And I don't give a shit. Take all the fucking steroids you want. I don't really give a shit what you do. I I don't care. If you want to do that to gain an advantage, by all means, go for it. If that's what you think you need to do, go ahead. And if all the other teams are doing it, does it really give you that much of an advantage? Like, let's be fucking real. If every other team is doping, then they're on the same playing field and he still is just better. They did a great job of explaining it as EPO, which isn't even a testosterone steroid or anything like that. What they mentioned is it creates more blood cells and allows more oxygen to go through your body, which allows less acid buildup, which means your muscles can go for longer, essentially. It's a tremendously advantageous thing to have for cycling. Now, if everybody's using it and everybody is getting this 10% advantage, they mentioned there's a 10% advantage that this EPO gives you. And they mentioned that there's a 2% difference between the last place cyclist and the first place cyclist. I mean, that's the advantage that this stuff gives you. And so if everybody's taking it, and if you're not taking it, they did a couple interviews with guys who weren't taking it, who just weren't a part of the Tour de France teams, because you can't fucking hack it. You just can't cut it. You can't compete with these guys. And I truly understand why they do it, and I don't care if they do. You know, it's their body. It's their choice. Do whatever the fuck you want to do. I think one of the biggest things I saw in that interview was when Lance was asked if he thought that the EPO and the blood transfusions there had anything to do with him getting sick and him being very near death. So yeah, he does mention that, but to be fair, he does he mentioned specifically the human growth hormone and it was at its infancy stages kind of then at that point. I mean, to be fair, the stuff they're giving out now is I mean, it's just a total different ball game and it's a total different animal. EPO specifically I don't know if it would be able to cause cancer. He mentions the growth hormone very specifically as to what he was taking that he thinks may have had an issue. And he just says because growth, if it's going to grow good things, it's also going to grow bad things. But I mean, it's obviously something that you can't discount. I mean, it's obviously a worry you have. You're putting a foreign substance in your body. So you're going to be worrisome that it can cause damage. Well, like I said, I took two major points from the whole documentary, really. And the first one, I didn't realize how close to death he really was. Like, I knew they removed a testicle, and that was always the joke. Like, hey, Lance is riding with one ball or whatever it is. But, like, it was in his lungs. It was in his brain. And the doctor saying, yeah, I told him he has a 20% chance to live just so that he wouldn't give up. Yeah, the stage four, I, had, I, I wasn't aware that it was that severe. I mean, stage four is, I mean, that's, you're dead. You don't come back from stage four cancer. So that was, I mean, God. Props to that guy. Props. 
So again, it was a very fun documentary. I think we all took a lot from it. I have one last comment and then a question for you guys. My last comment is, look at Oprah Winfrey being the one that actually gets Lance Armstrong to come out and tell all of his truths. Just the impact that Oprah had at that time. That was where everybody went to kind of spill their guts. And then my question for you guys is, would you give his seven Tour de France titles back to him? Did he earn those? Yeah. I mean, he earned, I mean, I would give him back to him, but I also don't want to put an asterisk next to Barry Bonds' 800 career home runs or whatever it is. I don't care that he used EPO. Everybody was using EPO. What helped him win those championships wasn't the EPO. It was his determination, his drive, his unwillingness to give up. That's why he won those. It's like people talk about when they talk about steroids. I've always heard people say, oh, I wish I'd taken steroids in high school. I'd be in the major leagues. No, you wouldn't because you don't go and work out every single day. You can't just take steroids and then you become a great baseball player. You need hand-eye coordination. You need to work out. You need to practice at it. You need to spend eight hours a day in the batting cage while taking steroids. So it's not just steroids. It's not just EPO. Lance Armstrong is what won those championships, not EPO. Thank you, Wayne. Bro, let's, let's, give, it, let's give a clap right here, boys and girls. I mean, that's the argument that I can't stress to enough people. I'm going to be very open and honest with you guys. You guys both know this behind the scenes. I take TRT therapy. I take steroids. You know, it's administered by doctors. And I think it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, if I'm being quite honest with you. I've never felt better. I've never felt, I don't know, just better in general. At the same time, if you just take it and don't do anything, you're just going to be a fat piece of shit like you are now. You have to work harder than you would have before because you can work harder. And I don't think people understand that, is that, yes, these guys took things to speed their process up. And yes, they're technically illegal things and they are performance enhancing. But you still have to train harder than every other person on the planet to be the greatest, regardless if you take steroids or not. Yes, it will help you get there quicker and faster, but you still have to train harder. You still have to break down and destroy your body. And all that steroid does is help you grow back faster so you can do the same thing again tomorrow. And to have that determination and drive is what separates the truly elite and special players from the the average and good ones. It's not steroids. It's the fucking drive to make it and want it happen. And I think that's the true and like big argument that everybody fails to see. They just think, oh, you put this in your body and it's a miracle drug. Well, that's not at all what happens. If you don't work twice as hard as the next guy, you're not taking advantage of what you're doing, and it doesn't really have that much of an effect. Big point that I took away as well at the end here is that, you know, he's talking about I've forgiven these people and I was kind of a jerk to these people looking back at it. I was a horrible person to these people, and that's all well and good. But the thing that stood out to me is when they asked him about Floyd Landis, where he said, I could be Floyd Landis. I could wake up every morning and be a piece of shit. And they said, really? That's how you feel? He goes, yeah, that's exactly what he is. And Floyd Landis is just the guy who told on him because he kept his mouth shut for two years. And then when he asked for a spot on the team, they're like, no, sorry. And he's like, dude, I covered your asses for two years. Now you're not going to give me a spot on the team? All right, game on. You know. And now Lance Armstrong thinks he's a piece of shit? I don't think so. And it doesn't seem like Floyd holds any sort of animosity towards Lance. I think what it was is that Floyd Landis, when you watch this, he's a type A alpha personality, and so is Lance. And I don't doubt for a second that when they were riding together, they butted heads just personality-wise, and that's why Lance just doesn't like him. I think it goes a little deeper than that, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't know. I kind of side with Lance on this. I mean, I don't know. Shut your fucking mouth. You're really going to be that of a little bitch that you go and tattletale after, like, yeah, you got caught. That sucks, man. I'm sorry for you. You got caught. I understand. You kept your mouth shut. You didn't tattle on the whole sport like you shouldn't have, like you shouldn't do. And then now we came back. Yeah, we came back. We got a team. But like they said, you're radioactive, bro. We can't let you on. Like, we let you on, and then it's just guilty by association. It brings our team down, everything like that. The fact that you can't be a man and understand that and take it personally and be so fucking petty about it. I don't know. It, it That really did bug me. I didn't really enjoy Floyd Landis's take on that. It just seemed like that whole point made me like him less. He was like, well, they didn't like me after two years, so I told on them. Mwah. I just didn't like that side of it. Well, I just thought the fact that Lance wouldn't let it go. I mean, so he told on you, but were you doing it? All right, so it's like, you know, if you're cheating on your girl and somebody tells your girl, like, don't be mad at them, like, you shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. 
Yeah, but it's a whole different thing. Like, this goes, like, deeper into, like, sports, I think, in general. And you don't break the seal of what goes on behind closed doors. And I think that's what Floyd did. And he did it with malice intention. He did it to purposely burn a ship down, not to be a good guy and, like, stand up for something good. He did it to, like, be a fucking dick. And, you know, he he did it to be an ass and like not to be like you know uh, i i don't even know like and it's just that's what bugged me about it it just didn't sit well with me and it still doesn't you know and i I don't know ultimately what floyd landis is responsible for is making sure that america doesn't care about cycling that much ever again the nfl season is upon us and it's time to start talking about different divisions how we think these teams are going to do how we think they're going to end up are they going to make the playoffs who's going to be the most valuable player of that division who's going to be the least valuable there's a lot of talk about it right now we figured we'd kick ours off with the nfc south and our resident tampa bay buccaneers fan to get his take i have an idea what it is so let's go to dan what do you got for the nfc south let's go baby I mean, is there really an argument here? I think we can start it off with the Bucks. Quick breakdown. I think we're going to end up going 12-4 and four this season. I think we are going to win this division, and I think we will have the number one seed in the NFC. I just really think what we've done is kind of perfect for our team. We gave Tom the weapons he needed around him. We've rebuilt this offensive line. I know a lot of people think it's a weak spot, but personally, I really don't see it that way. I think Donovan Smith is a really solid player. Ali Marpet's a better than good left guard. Ryan Jansen's a top five center. I think right guard, we're a little weak. Right now, we got Alex Kappa, but who knows? And then Tristan Wirfs, the rookie, I think is obviously going to be a really great player. On defense, you know, I think our secondary is going to be the, the lynch point on how good we do. You know, we got three second-year corners starting, and I think that's kind of going to be a big deal and, and to see where they go and how they mature. But, I mean, I really think the sky's the limit for this team, and I think we're a really, really, really great ball club. Sully, I do agree with you. I actually have the Bucks going 12-4 and four as well. That's the team that I have winning that division. I think that that offense is just too many toys, too many fun things for Tom Brady to have at this age. It's like a guy that works his entire career, retires, and then goes and gets that awesome sports car that he saved up for, except this time he gets to do it before he retires. So Brady's going to have Godwin and Mike Evans and that trio of tight ends that at least so far all are on the same team. So I think that this is going to be their division to take, and I have them going 12-4. and four. I agree. I have 12 and 4 as well. I have them splitting with the Saints. I have them splitting with the Panthers. And then I have them going pretty much two losses outside the division. So that's how they get their four losses. But I have them 12 and 4. And then I know a lot of teams or a lot of people have the Saints going second place. I do as well, but not as many wins as a lot of people have predicted. I have the Saints at 10 and 6. I think that they're going to lose a few more games than people think. People think they're going to go 12 and 4 and maybe lose a tiebreaker with the Buccaneers, or they think they're going to go 11 and 5. I'm going 10 and 6 with the Saints. I've got 11 and 5 for the Saints. I still think that they're going to have a good season. I think that they're actually going to split with the Bucs this season. And I really think that they have a strong offense. Their defense isn't what they'd like it to be, but I still have them going 11 and 5, second in that division. Sully, where do you have those Saints? Man, I hate that I'm agreeing with Wayne here so much. I got him going 10 and 6 as well. I think they are going to stumble a little bit, you know, in a couple games that I think teams might expect them to win. I don't know if I believe in that defense to kind of repeat the same things it did last year. Obviously, if it does, they're going to be a really special team again, but I got to see it to believe it. So I've got them as 10 and 6 also coming in at, at second place in that division. Sully, who's your third place team? Uh, I've got the Falcons actually sneaking in there, but this is actually going to be a lot closer than people think. I do not have the Falcons winning a ton of games. I got them at 7-9, and nine, and actually I have them tied with the Panthers to spoil my fourth place team. I think the Panthers go 7-9 and nine as well. So I think this division's pretty good and pretty talented, but once it gets past the Saints, I think there's a little fall off there. I think the Falcons are certainly better than you're giving them credit for right there, Sully. I've got them going 9-7, and seven, so the reverse of what you have them doing. I think that that team is still strong. That division is very strong. It's the strongest division that Tom Brady's ever going to have to compete in. And I think you're actually cutting them down at the knees there. The reason I have the Saints at 10-6 and six, and the reason I have some close games for the Buccaneers is because I have the much-improved Carolina Panthers going 9-7. and seven. I think that Teddy Bridgewater is a fantastic addition. He went 5-0 and for the Saints last year. He's familiar with the division. I think he's a tremendous quarterback who just needs to stay healthy, and I'm assuming he is. That's why I gave him 9-7. and seven. I think he's got McCaffrey back there. They added the deep threat with Robbie Anderson, who's going to open up things for McCaffrey. I really like 9-7 and seven as the Panthers. I think the one's going to surprise you guys, Atlanta Falcons, 3-13. and 13. 
Oh, absolutely. That's way too low, Wayne. Yeah, I just, see, I, I don't think so at all, actually. I'm going back and I'm looking at their schedule because I said 7-9 and nine and I had a question mark next to my notes and I want to go back and look. And I honestly think they may go 6-10 and 10 or 5-11 or, or and 11 the more I look at it. I mean, they start their season off rough. And, I mean, they've got to go Seahawks, Cowboys, Bears, eh, but then Packers, Panthers, Vikings. I mean, that's a tough opening. I think they maybe win one of those games. And then, I mean, I think they're going to get swept by the Saints. I think they're going to get swept by the Bucks. They got to play the Chiefs. I mean, I think they maybe win the Chargers, maybe the Raiders, maybe the... Like, th- this team doesn't have a ton of wins in it. I actually agree more with Wayne than, than I thought I would here. And I'm going to change my pick a little. I'm going down to 5-11, and 11, actually, not 7-9. and nine. 5-11 and 11 is actually where I have the Carolina Panthers. I have them improving from last year, but I think that the defensive additions that their coach made with every single one of their draft choices, they went defense with all of them. So I think that team is going to improve, but it's going to be a slow process. I don't think that that offense has improved enough to take third place in that division. I really am going to look forward to see how this division plays out because I think you guys have the Falcons all wrong. See, I don't know. I, I think the Panthers have a great offense. I mean, you've got Christian McCaffrey, and DJ Moore is one of my favorite players in the whole league. I think he's truly about to explode, especially with Teddy Bridgewater. I really, really, really expect big things from DJ Moore. And then I think Curtis Samuel's a really underrated weapon. I think that team's pretty scary. You already mentioned their defense. I think Matt Rule is just going to bring a culture change. And, you know, I don't think 7-9 and is all that great, but, I mean, I think they're just going to be a, a different ball club. And I, I see a regression out of Matt Ryan and just out of the Falcons in general. I agree. Wayne, let me ask you, who is your division MVP? Well, I was just going to say, so my division MVP goes to the 9-7 and seven Panthers, and it's going to be Christian McCaffrey. I think that he is going to have a 2,000-yard all-purpose season because I think that that addition of Robbie Anderson on the outside, is they're going to have to double cover over the top because he's so fast. You've got DJ Moore, who is fantastic. Like Dan mentioned, you have Samuel. And then that's going to give Teddy Bridgewater, who I think is a very cerebral quarterback, that check down, check down, check down to Christian McCaffrey. I think he's going to have 100 receptions and probably 800 yards receiving. And then, of course, he's going to have 1,200 yards rushing. I don't hate that pick at all. Yeah, that could most definitely happen. I think, you know, they're going to continue to use him. I was certainly surprised when the Panthers and McCaffrey came to an agreement on a deal, but they're going to continue to use him like crazy. I'm not sure that's my guy because my guy is going to go to the division winner. And that is Mike Evans. I think that Mike Evans is a toy unlike Tom Brady's ever had before. That tall freak of nature. He's going to actually, in my opinion, have more touchdowns than he's ever had. And I'm talking about Mike Evans here. So I think that a guy that that's, is that tall and is such a threat in the end zone, a lot of people are going to consider the tight ends being where Brady's going to throw to. Mike Evans is going to have a freakish year. And I'm obviously going with that man, Tom Brady. You know, I've talked about it earlier. I don't see any reason why he can't throw for 4,200 yards, 40 touchdowns, and 10 picks. And uh, I just kind of fully expect him to to hit those numbers. And if he does, I just, I mean, obviously Mike Evans will be a huge beneficiary to that, but I think everyone will. And he spreads the ball around, and so I think a lot of guys are going to get their touches. I think everybody in offense is going to benefit, but he's just going to have gaudy numbers. I think they're going to be really fun. If I were to pick a least favorite or a least valuable player in this division, you know, I already had it as this, but I think it's going to be even more now. And I think it's just kind of his time, and that's going to be Matty Ice. I just think this is going to be the year that people start rumbling, oh, it's time for Atlanta to start looking for the quarterback of the future and things like that, and start planning for the future. And I just think Matty Ice is, is kind of going to hit his decline here. He's still got all these weapons and things like that, and I understand that. And I understand he's still putting up decent numbers, but the guy's just not winning ball games anymore. And I just think it catches up to him this year, finally. Y'all are burying a former MVP. I mean, what, 10 years ago he was the MVP? (laughs) That was four years ago, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) So my division least valuable player is actually, and and this is going to hurt so much because I love the guy and I feel bad for what happened to his career. Teddy Bridgewater, you know, I think that he's coming into a situation where there's so much pressure. You guys just added more pressure to him. I think with this team having such a revamped look and, and this offense that I don't believe in Robbie Anderson as much as I think Wayne and maybe you do, Sully, but I think that this offense is going to struggle. I don't think Christian McCaffrey is going to have as great as he or he had. So I think that Teddy Bridgewater has a lot of pressure on him to do more than what he's ready to do. And I think that I really believe he's my least valuable player for the NFC South. 
I think he's just a fantastic quarterback. I think he's such a smart quarterback. I think that the only thing that's plagued him is his health. So if you're telling me a healthy Teddy Bridgewater playing 16 games is going to be the least valuable player, I'm not buying that in a million years. I went with Dan's pick as well, Matt Ryan. I have him as the least valuable player. Like I said, I got the Falcons 3-13. and Matt Ryan has regressed the last three years in a row. Last year, he had Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones, and he couldn't hit either one of them in the hands, and he lost Hooper. So he's got even fewer weapons. I know they replaced him with Hayden Hurst, if you really want to call that a replacement. And I think he's just going to struggle even more without all the weapons he had last year. Man, we need to burn this shit down. Why we keep agreeing, man? What is happening? I don't know. It's gross. <laughs> now, the big news that's going on, because there really isn't a whole lot of news in sports, but this is one of the big stories, is Major League Baseball. We all want it back, and the owners and the players cannot agree on terms for the season. How long are the playoffs going to be? How long is the season going to be? And most importantly, how much are they going to get paid? Right now, the newest proposal I had seen was a 76-game schedule, and the players were going to get paid 75% of their agreed-upon prorated salary. In other words, you'll get paid 57 games for the 76 you're playing. Like, get the fuck out of here. That's old news, Wayne. The MLBPA has rejected that bid and has since came back with a proposal to the MLB for 89 games with a full prorated salary and expanded playoffs, which I assume will get rejected as well. But it's just a back and forth right now, and it's really just a shame. I mean, the MLB is just in such a shitty spot right now. They just look so terrible, in my opinion. I mean, these guys had an agreement way back as soon as all this shit happened in March, baseball and the Players Association sat down and agreed to full prorated salaries when we came back. And now baseball has used a stipulation in the contract that was just some crazy legal language written in to where now they can say, well, there were other financial stipulations involved with having no fans and things like that, that now we want to recoup that money. And in my opinion, that's the price of doing business, man. You own a multi-billion dollar business that when profits are booming, they are booming. And your employees get compensated as such. When this kind of situation happens, which nobody plans for, it's not your employee's fault and your employees shouldn't be held liable. You should be using your billions of dollars in profits and hundreds of million dollars in profits to, yeah, maybe you take a loss this year. That's a shame. The last five years, they've had record revenues for baseball. So I I don't know. I just don't really see how this is a good look for baseball in any way. It, it is a shame that the MLB is the odd sport out right now. We're talking about the NFL coming back around, hockey setting up for their playoff run, the NBA setting up for their playoff run, and the MLB is still at odds. You know, it does seem like this latest offer that Sully just spoke about, the 89-game season, even though it does seem like it's going to get rejected, it's closer than what we've talked about so far, what we've seen so far. So hopefully we're, we're getting warmer and warmer because I know there is a large contingent of baseball fans, us included, that would like to see some games be played. We miss seeing that stick ball, man. Yeah, for sure. Just to me, I wonder if the financial struggles that Major League Baseball is facing is a wake-up call for them that they need to have a true salary cap, like the NHL, like the NBA, like all of those other franchises that aren't struggling right now, all of the other leagues that aren't struggling because they have a salary cap. And the reason this benefits the owners is because a true salary cap requires revenue sharing. So teams like the Oakland A's and the Tampa Bay Rays, who don't bring in a lot of revenue, they're the ones that are hurting the most right now, they'd be getting some of that Yankee revenue, some of that Red Sox revenue. And none of the owners would really be hurting right now if they had a true salary cap and revenue sharing. It's a fantastic point, Wayne. I mean, and it's time that baseball turns this curve and does what every other league is doing and, and has this salary cap and has this, you know, parity that, that allows teams to not just hoard players and allows teams to not, like, what, what, you, what the problem now with baseball is small market teams that have no chance in winning and aren't the Rays or Oakland that still put out quality baseball and can still manage Moneyball in a great way where they can still win 90 games and still have a bottom you know, five payroll. These other teams that have bottom 10 payrolls are not even trying to win ball games. I mean, what kind of product is that that they're putting out? They're not even trying to win in any way whatsoever. They're just trying to put whatever product they can on the field to maximize profits in the long run. And I mean, that's just not the way baseball should work. You should always be trying to win and do better and things like that. And they just need a a complete overhaul. And hopefully this brings it around because I mean, it's really, really, really needed. One of the other things about the salary cap is I know a lot of people think that the salary cap, the players won't agree to it because they won't make as much money. 
completely false, 100% false. The owners won't agree to it because they won't make as much money. If you have a salary cap, you have to have a salary floor. And that means basically the players and the owners have to agree on a revenue sh split. Right now, the NFL, I believe, is 52% players, 48 owners. Hockey's 50-50 straight across the board. The NBA, I think, is 55 players, 45 owners. Major League Baseball right now, the owners make 63% of the revenue to 37 for the players. So if you actually had a 50-50 split with a salary cap and a salary floor, everybody's salary would go up, including the highest paid guys. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. The issue, though, is I don't think every contract would be fully guaranteed. As a matter of fact, I know they wouldn't. And, you know, I think that's where uh, I think they may lose a little bit. I think, you know, obviously the main players would still fight for that, but I don't think every contract would be a fully guaranteed contract like it is now. But still, I think players would jump all over that. I think more of what it does, even if the, the highest players, like even if the Mike Trouts don't make more than 35 mil a year, which I think is pretty high, the floors are going to make more. The average guy will end up making more. And that's what's important in like the game of baseball, where there's so many people in that middle tier that essentially make up the game. And I think those guys are the ones that would benefit most. And those guys are the ones that are hurting the most with a holdout and a strike. So they're the ones that need a season and want a season. And I, I just don't see any way it happens, though. MLB just wants too much. I mean, if you don't make the playoffs in this quote-unquote format, this 76-game format, you're only getting 50% of your pro-rated salary. So, I mean, like, that's bonkers. A guy like Mike Trout, who's scheduled to make $34 million a year, could end up making a little bit over 7 a little bit under $8 million a year if he doesn't make the playoffs. That's just insane. It can't happen. Baseball has this money. They just need to suck it up and do the right thing, which, you know, I, I don't think any of us think they're going to do, to be honest. I was just going to say, do you guys think we, we will have a lost MOB season? I don't think so because I, th I think that they're at the point now, like I had mentioned earlier, that they're, they're getting proposals out there every single day or every other day. The owners do want to get this done. You know the players want to get it done because they're not getting paid anything right now. So everybody wants to get it done. I think they're really close. I just think that who's going to give up more? I honestly think it's going to be the players because whenever these labor disputes happen, I always feel like it's the players that end up losing. See, I agree. I think whenever these labor disputes happen, it's the players that end up losing, and I just don't see any way the players are going to lose in this. I think they've got their feet firmly in the ground. I think they're going to entrench into there, and I think they're not moving. They want full prorated and nothing else. And if they don't get that, I don't think they're playing baseball, and I just don't see that happening right now. I really don't. There is a short window for baseball people. They're, they're still talking about the end of October being that, that latest window they'll push it due to contractual negotiations and, and obviously weather. Well, talking baseball has actually led us into our Infinity Five, which is we got to talking, since we're going to talk about baseball at the end of the show, we said, let's talk about who we think the top five players going into a 2020 season, if there is one, are going to be. Who are our top five guys? Now, I know that there's probably going to be a lot of similarities between our lists. I think I'm going to have a couple that get mixed in there that maybe you guys didn't expect. But would you guys rather start off one through five, since we're probably all going to have the same one, or do you guys want to go five through one? I think we should start one through five because no shock here, I think. And if you don't have Mike Trout here at one, I don't want to hear the rest of your list, if I'm being quite honest. So, yeah, I think we can all agree we got Trout at one. And then I think we can work our way down from there. Is uh, You know, you say you've got these shockers. You know, I think my four and five may be a bit of a surprise, too. So, yeah, you know, let's just work it that way. I have a surprise fella in my five, but I'm going to go ahead and go with Sully. Trout is my number one. He should be everybody's number one. Wayne, he's written down as your number one, right? Of course, yeah. I was going to have Sully actually give me all of his reasons why he's number one, just to kind of pump his brakes, which I know he'll love to do. I mean, to be fair, he is the returning MVP. He is the returning silver slugger. Let's not forget he led the league in on-base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS, OPS plus last year. Meanwhile, he still is only 27 in the dead prime of his career. You know, he led the league in intentional walks. The guy just get walks every other day. You know, his batting average did drop a little bit. But to be honest with you, I think that's going to bounce back up to above 300. And I think we're going to honestly see a career year for him this year. His home runs have continued to tick up. And I think that's going to happen again this year. I think he's going to hit the 50 mark, you know, in his full season. I'm going to extrapolate these numbers into full season numbers. So, you know, if he, he's playing 82 game and obviously I think he's going to get 26 home runs or something like that. So I think his numbers would be 52 if he played a full season. You know, I just think the sky's the limit for this kid. And I think right now he's in his dead prime and I think he's just going to continue to go up. He is such an amazing player. We just, I think, you know, as he gets older and the Angels continue not to make the postseason or even be in contention, you start to wonder if this guy's going to be a guy that ends up with zero World Series championships. 
See, but that's where I got to jump in. I think that team's a lot better this year. I mean, I think Joe Madden has won baseball games every single place he's ever been. I mean, Anthony Rendon is a huge pickup. He, he, you know, not to blast the name that may be on somebody's list here. The guy's a stud. I think Shohei Otani is an actually legitimately good, great, borderline great baseball player. If he gets through these injuries and can finish a season without missing a ton of games, I think he has a real potential to be a great baseball player. I, I, I think the Angels are a really sneaky good ball club, if I'm being honest. I was trying to find some sort of knock on Mike Trout. Like, if there's anything that is negative about him, he's a great fielder. And the only two things I really came up with, and again, not enough to knock him off of the top spot because he's he is Shaquille O'Neal going into the draft, Tim Duncan. There was no doubt everybody was going to have him at number one. The two knocks I had on him, one was, I think he does strike out a lot for as good of a hitter as he is. I'd love to see him with fewer strikeouts, but I know that the way the game is now with launch angles and whatnot, it's hard to find guys who are like Tony Gwynn and are going to strike out a few only a handful of times. And the other thing is I'd love to see Mike Trout steal some more bases. He only had 11 stolen bases last year. He is a fast guy. He's really fat. I'd love to see him get closer to like a 30-30 or a 40-30 kind of guy. I mean, he's only done 30-30 once in his career. I mean, I think he's more of a 20-20. Oh, actually, I guess he did it twice. But I think he's more of a 20 stolen base guy. I do think 11 was a little low for him. But I just think kind of that's just the way he's going now. Yes, he's still fast. I, I don't think he's as fast as he once was. I still I don't know if he's that elite, elite speed anymore. And I do agree with the strikeouts. I do think it's something that he does a little too much. It's not as much, you know, as it was in his earlier career when he was striking out 180, 150 times. You know, he's still down to the 120 range. But I do think he needs to get back to his uh, other years where he was striking out like 90 times and things like that. I think that's where he should be at. But like you said, I think the game's different now. Strikeouts aren't viewed as, as bad anymore. If you're either getting a home run or a strikeout, they would take that. But still, I agree. I think that is kind of his one knock. But if that's what you're saying about the guy, that he strikes out 100 times and that's bad, I mean, Jesus Christ, the guy's clearly a god. At two, I've got Christian Yelich. And I mean, honestly, I think if you don't have Christian Yelich, again, I don't know what kind of baseball you're watching. The guy's just doing everything right right now. He's such a good ball player. He's just all around, the guy does everything well. He's he's hitting for average. He's hitting for power. He's playing great defense. I'm a really, really, really big Christian Yelich fan. I have Christian Yelich at number two as well. I was a huge fan of his down at Miami and then seeing him go over to the Brewers and be a beast there. I have him at number two. And Wayne, do you have him there as well? I also have Christian Yelich at number two. The guy hit 329 last year with 44 home runs and 30 stolen bases. He had 97 RBIs, which I would have liked to have seen higher, especially with 44 home runs, but he can't help that his guys can't get on base in front of him. <laughs> I mean, his ball club still did great. They still made the playoffs. And I mean, he still is second in the MVP voting behind that dude. Uh, actually, no, that was this is NL, so that was behind probably the guy who we have mostly at three. Yeah, I mean, like you said, Christian Yelich, I mean, he was slugging 671 this year. It, it was just insane. The guy was just hitting off the charts. I, I mean, he, he's just a great ball player, and I'm really excited. Again, he's only 27 too. So we got Yelich and, and Trout both just in the dead primes of their careers, just slugging the tits off the ball. Well, my number three guy, I can tell you, I'm sure is not on either of your top five lists. I would be surprised, actually, even if my number three guy is on your honorable mentions list. And I went with number three as a 22-year-old for the Atlanta Braves, Ronald Acuna Jr. And the reason I have him as the third best player of Major League Baseball going into the season is last year he had 41 home runs and 37 stolen bases. He almost went 40-40 as a rookie. He had an 883 OPS, 100 RBIs. He hit 280. I'd like to see that get up a little bit more. But I just think that this year was supposed to be another huge leap for Acuna. I thought he was going to be at 45 home runs and 43 stolen bases heading towards 50 home runs as he hits his peak. Well, don't be so sure, Wayne, because uh, Ronald Acuna's, not to skip over three, because I have Cody Bellinger there, but Ronald Acuna's actually number four on my list, so I'm not shocked you have him there at three. I agree. I just think the sky's the limit for this kid. You mentioned he hit 280. You talk about strikeouts, and a lot of them, this guy struck out 190 times and still hit 280. So uh, I think if he follows a similar career path as Mike Trout here and gets his strikeouts under wraps and drops those down to 120, 110, around that area still walks the way he walks, still hits the way he does. He's going to be a 290, 300 hitter. He's going to be, I mean, he just has all the makings of a, of a tremendously great ball player. I think his stolen base numbers are going to come down a little, but I still think he's got a real shot of being a 30-30 guy for the next two or three years. And I think he's just really coming into his, his stride here at 22. I mean, I, I think the sky's the limit for Ronald Acuna. So I don't hate him at three. I still have 
Cody Bellinger at three right now. I just think he's put it together already, and he's ahead of where Acuna is as a hitter. So I think that's why I'd have him. You know, he's only striking out 100 times. He's hitting 305. The guy gets on base at a 40% clip. You know, he's got a 400 on base percentage and 629 slugging percentage. I mean, he's just crushing the ball and... He also plays defense at a really high level. He's a gold glover out there in, in the outfield position. So I'm just a huge Cody Bellinger fan. That's no knock on Ronald Acuna at three because, like I said, I had him at four. I just think the top three are, are kind of set in stone right now, and and I think that's just the way I'd have him. But, man, Acuna's a special ball player. I do have Belly at number three. I think his position versatility, the fact that he can play first base and then also go out there to the outfield. He's a young guy that is, you know, showing so much power. I remember when he was coming up, you know, from his AAA right up to that jump in the MLB. And didn't he win Rookie of the Year, Sully? What's that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the guy's a, a pure beast. He's part of that new wave of minor league players that don't spend a lot of time floating through the system. They come into the draft already ready, and they spend maybe a season and a half, and they're already making an impact. So, he was part of that wave, and that's my guy at three. I, I love this guy, and uh, he's going to be great for that Dodger team that just added a guy that's in my top five, but we're not going to mention him yet. And I do want to also knock Wayne. You know, you had some false bravado there and thinking that neither one of us had Ronald Acuna Jr. He's six on my list. I just have him a little bit further down than you guys. I think I'd like to see him do a little bit more for that Braves lineup, but I do have him on my honorable mentions. My number four actually is the one that I think may get some questions from you guys, and it's the third baseman for the Rockies, Nolan Arnato. I absolutely love this guy. I think he is an absolute stud on offense. On defense, you're getting the best third baseman in the league. I don't care what you say about Anthony Rendon. Arnato is my guy, and that's my guy at number four. I don't think that's a bad pick. I, I like Arnado a lot. I think he just got a big contract extension, didn't he? So I think that he's going to perform well. He's in Colorado, which is thin air. He's going to hit a lot of bombs. I, I really don't have a problem with him. I honestly didn't have him in my top nine when I wrote down my nine names. But he could easily be there. I don't think that it's outside the box to have him in there. Not something I would argue. I think he's a really good player. He's not too old, and he's just way too good on defense and offense to not consider. No, I'm a huge Nolan Arenado fan. I mean, I think he's just a quintessential kind of all-around ball player. I mean, he's a seven-time gold glover, three-time platinum glover, perennially hits for 300. He's going to slug for 350 every single year. He's going to get you 35 bombs every single year. He's going to get you 100 RBIs every single year. I just love that kind of consistency. He's actually my number seven. So, I mean, I can't hate on the pick there at four. I'm going to wait. I said my number four, it's Ronald Acuna. I think my number five is who Wayne has at number four, but we'll see here. So who do you got at number four, Wayne? We'll see. I actually have Alex Bregman at number four. Oh, and fuck that cheating piece of shit. Yep, Alex Bregman. I have him because he has improved every single year over the last few years. I bet years. he has. He knows what pitch is coming. Well, Buzz. he knows whether it's off-speed or not. Oh, my God. But he had a 9.2 war last year, 41 home runs, 296, 112 RBIs, OPS of 1,015. Every year you look at going back three years, he had 284, then 286, then 296. We've got 19 home runs, 31, 41. He's going to get better again this year, even without the trash cans. So I think he's going to hit over 300 this year, again with 40-some-odd home runs and 100 RBIs. To me, he's the fourth-best player in Major League Baseball. Uh, man, we talked about pre that I hope somebody has an Astros in here so I can rag him, and I'm so glad you do. And I'm glad it's Bregman, too, because I actually think he's one of the bigger beneficiaries from this whole cheating scandal. And I'm a huge Alex Bregman fan, to be honest with you. I was pre-scandal. I was a big fan of his game. I really like what he brings to, the, to baseball and to his team. I love his versatility. I love his ability to hit for power and hit for average and spray the ball to all sides of the field. I don't love the cheating aspect. I want to see what he does this year before I see what kind of actual ball player he is. You know, I don't know what kind of ball player he is because I don't know who he is without knowing what's coming. And I don't love that. You minimize the effect of knowing off-speed or fastball. And I don't mean this like condescendingly or being a dickhead. Did you not play baseball at all? To know if it's a fastball or an off-speed pitch is fucking monumental. That's so huge. If I can know that before what's happening, and not in the MLB, I'm saying, but in like whatever I'm playing, you would exceedingly do so much better. I think you minimize that so much, and I don't think you can. So, yeah, I don't agree with Alex Bregman at all on any list. Well, the reason I minimize it is because when I did play baseball, it was in high school. So I didn't play at the highest level, Major League Baseball or anything like that. And in high school, basically, you got a fastball, curveball, maybe a slider. You don't face a lot of guys who throw change-ups and splitters and slurves and knuckleballs and things like that. So really, 
it would be more of a benefit in high school because you know if it's not a fastball, it's 90% chance it's a curveball, 10% chance it's a slider. In Major League Baseball, you might know it's an off-speed pitch, but a splitter or a sinker is going to act a lot differently than a curveball, a lot differently than a slider, a lot differently than a lot of off-speed pitches. There's so many different off-speed pitches that guys throw that just knowing that you can wait on it, to me, isn't a big enough advantage. Yeah, but what you, what you got to understand, though, is they're, they're not swinging at those. They're waiting for the fastball. So they're sitting there and they're waiting. And so, okay, they know it's an off-speed pitch. And so unless he leaves a hanging slider or a hanging curve or a hanging change, then they're just going to let it go. And it's more than likely going to be a ball because most breaking balls start over the plate and end off the plate. That's just kind of how they, that's like how you should throw a pitch. And so I think the whole idea is, is they're getting in, in beneficial counts, knowing that, that off-speed's coming. Then they wait for a fastball that they know is coming, know it's going to be a strike. And then they fucking pound it. I just don't know. I want to see him do it without the beneficial knowledge of knowing what pitch is coming. That's all. all right. Wayne, go ahead and redeem yourself. Who do you have at number five? Whoa. I want to throw five first because this is my shocker. I got Juan Soto as my number five ball player going into the season this year. And I don't care if he's 20. I don't care if he's only played a full season of baseball. I think he is the most dangerous hitter that we've seen in a really, really, really long time. The guy walked into baseball at 19 years old and hit for 292 and, and 406 in his limited time as a rookie. And then last year in a full season, hit 282 with a 400 on base percentage, a 550 slugging, and a 950 OPS. I mean, that's just bonkers. The guy hit for 35 home runs and 100 RBIs as a 20-year-old. We talk about Acuna in the sky's the limit. I just think Juan Soto is the next coming of, of greatness that we're watching, and I'm just really, really, really happy to be able to watch it. And if I could have ranked him higher, I would have, but I just couldn't figure the argument over the guys ahead of him. But, man, I, I love Juan Soto, and I think he's a tremendous ball player. Juan Soto is actually my seven. He rounded out my honorable mention. I like Ronald Acuna Jr. I just haven't seen enough of it. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it just because I had Acuna so high, and I, I was surprised that you guys did as well, and for the same reasons. He's a young, young, young guy who put up monster numbers, and you just assume that they're going to keep going up. And so if I'm going to believe that, then I have to believe if Acuna can do better next year or this year than he did last year, then that puts him in the top five in baseball. And like you're saying, the same thing with Soto. If he comes out and he hits 302 and he's got an on-base of 440 or something like that, then yeah, I mean, why wouldn't he be a top five player? And the way they're trending, there's no reason why they won't. My number five actually would maybe be the shocker because Cody Bellinger did not make my top five. Ugh. And I had Bregman over him, and then I had, at number five, I had Jacob deGrom. And the reason I had deGrom is I felt like I had to have a pitcher. I think that MajorLeagueBaseball.com actually rates Garrett Cole higher, but I think that's wrong. I think Cole had a good year last year, but his two years prior were nothing super special. DeGrom, every single year, is going to give you 8 to 10 war. He's going to give you a 2.5 ERA and 250 strikeouts. The problem is he's on the Mets, so he's going to go 55 and 50 over his career because they can't score runs for him. But the guy is just a lights-out pitcher. If he was on a better team, if, if Jacob DeGrom was on the Yankees, uh, he'd be 22 and 3. Well, I'm not surprised you picked a pitcher, considering that you value pitchers, I think, pretty highly. But I am shocked that you picked the right one, because I agree. I think Jacob DeGrom is the, he's the highest pitcher rated on my list. I don't, I have him at 10, but he's the highest pitcher rated on my list. And I have him ahead of Garrett Cole, and I agree with you. I just think it's, you know what you're going to get. And consistency is something that is pretty odd, actually, in the pitching world. And to know what you're going to get out of Jacob DeGrom every single year and just every single start, I think is just incredible. And I just think he's a true workhorse. To not have Cody Bellinger on your list is laughable. To not have the last year's MVP on your list of top five players going into the league when he's 23 years old is just mind-boggling to me. It doesn't make sense to me. But hey, to each his own. So at number five, to round out my top five list, because we are doing the Infinity Five, not the Infinity 7, 9, 10, 12, is another Dodger, Cody Bellinger's teammate, Mookie Betts. You may call me a homer because he's a former Red Sox player, but this guy is a former MVP. He too is very young, and I think he is primed to be in that lineup and just be a megastar along with Cody Bellinger and that the bevy of talent that the Dodgers actually do have. 
I had Mookie Betts in my honorable mention along with Bellinger. The reasons I didn't have Bellinger in there is because last year was his first really good year. In the two years prior, he hit 260. I know he was rookie of the year. He hit 39 bombs his rookie year. But he's a 260, 267 guy and then jumps up to 305. If he can do that two years in a row, I probably would have had him in my top five. But just it could be an outlier year, which is why I didn't have Mookie Betts in there. Because his MVP year, he hit 346 with 32 bombs. Last year, he hit 295 with 29. The year before his MVP year, he hit 264 with 24 home runs. So again, it's just an MVP year that if you take that out of there, he's not a top five player. And I know it's in there, so you have to leave it in there. But you know what I'm saying? It's a, it's an outlier season for me, unless he can duplicate it. Now, my only argument for that is you got Acuna in there with one season. So I don't see how you can't have Bellinger in there with one season. Because it's his rookie year. If it had been Bellinger's rookie year, then yeah, I'd probably have him in there. But the fact that he had two full seasons before this where he hit 260 and Okunia's only year, he hit 280 with 40 bombs and 37 stolen bases. It's a career average, I guess. I mean, it wasn't his only year. I mean, Acuna's rookie year was last year. He actually won rookie of the year. So Cody Bellinger has one more year on him. Yes, I agree the jump in batting average is a little alarming. And it's funny you mentioned the jump in Mookie Betts batting average. You want to know what happened that rookie season? You want to know what's funny that happened that year? Oh, Alex Cora and the trash can cheating happened that season. I wonder why Mookie Betts had such a great batting average. We'll see what happens to Alec Bregman this year with no more cheating. Okay, well, he's going to be in my top five. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see next year when he plummets and his batting average drops 40 fucking points. Well, then I'll have somebody that'll piss you off in my top five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, hey, guys, love another great show. We hammered it, hit it out of the park, so to say, since we just finished this segment. And, uh, again, love the intro right through to the exit here. Don't jump in, Kenny. I know that Dan's going to call for you, but... Thank you to everybody listening. Thank you for everybody who voted for us for Show of the Month. We're officially the Show of the Month. It was announced on the website. We're up there now. Tune in, rtfsportsnetwork.com, and check us out on the website. Check out the blogs, and check us out on whatever you listen to podcasts on. All right, Kenny, all the ladies and gentlemen are telling me that airplanes fly under the buildings. Is that right? It's- 